Leaders Labyrinth would like to disclose to our audience today's episode features an incredible Iranian woman, Dr. Sara Safari. This interview was recorded on July 17th, 2022, before the Iranian Revolution for Women's Rights, and does not reflect Dr. Sara Safari's perspective on the revolution. As an immigrant from Iran, Dr. Sara Safari has since been heavily involved in protesting, supporting, and advocating for the equality and justice for the Iranian Women's Revolution. We would like to dedicate today's episode to all of the brave women and men of Iran who are taking a stand against injustice and inequality in support of empowerment for women's rights. Women, life, freedom. And it's going to take me down and I'm going to be inside this one of these crevasses and nobody can ever come down and find my body because I'm going to be buried fully. And I saw my whole life right in front of me. I can't see anything. I can't breathe. I'm trying to clip myself to the anchor, which was on ice, but I'm shaking so badly I can't even clip myself. And then at one point I thought, this is it. Welcome to Leaders Labyrinth. I am your host, Michael Grant. We take you on a journey with resilient individuals who share how they have achieved the extraordinary. This show is designed to empower you to take the lead in your life's quest through the wisdom of our leaders, inflicting truth, possibility, and fueling your hearts with passion of what sets your souls on fire to becoming your best version of self. Grammy award-winning music artist Dolly Parton once said, if your actions create a legacy that inspires others to dream more, do more, become more, and learn more, then you are an excellent leader. Today's leader in our labyrinth is the first Iranian woman to climb all seven summits across seven continents with the noble goal of creating awareness and raising funds for empowering women. She is a professional, motivational speaker and TED talker. She is the author of Above the Mountain's Shadow and the founder of Climb Your Everest, a nonprofit organization empowering marginalized women by providing educational opportunities for young girls around the globe. She is the recipient of the United Nations Global Citizen Award and has also been featured in National Geographic magazine. It is my sincere pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Sara Safari. Welcome. We are here in the labyrinth today, coming to you live from Irvine, California, with the courageous, heroic, and unstoppable Dr. Sara Safari. Sara, thank you for joining us in the labyrinth. How are you feeling today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so happy to be here with you. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. Thank you. Sorry, you are a woman that has broken barriers, becoming the first Iranian woman to climb all seven summits. You are a motivational speaker for leadership conferences and TED Talk. You have published a book called Above the Mountain Shadow, and you founded a nonprofit for empowering marginalized women called Climb Your Everest. You have been featured in many magazines, making your mark as a mountain climber and philanthropist, most notably in National Geographic. So congratulations to all your wonderful accomplishments and for making a positive impact around the world. 
my first question to you is what is the fuel to your fire that's inside of you that really pushes you to embrace these incredible challenges? I would say I'm a learner. I like to challenge myself because I want to learn something out of that situation. I want to put myself in a situation that I don't know anything about and learn from it and make mistakes. I mean, before I wasn't uh, very good with making mistakes, but I guess I made so many mistakes uh, all over my life that at this point I made peace with it and I purposefully put myself in a situation to learn from. Absolutely. Yeah, that sounds like a, a very uh, interesting way to put yourself in uncomfortable situations to see what else you're capable of and see what else that you enjoy doing. So my understanding is that 10 years ago, this wasn't your life and you had a completely different path. So what were you doing before you, be, you started climbing the highest points in the world? Um, I was a simple electrical engineer working a nine to five job. Um, I studied my bachelor's and master's, uh, was electrical engineering. And, um, I, that's what I did in Iran. Back in Iran, I studied engineering. And when I moved to the United States 20 years ago, I just, I didn't know any better. Uh, my parents told me I have two options in life, either a doctor or an engineer. And I, didn't like blood so I thought oh I'll become an engineer that's it that's my only option really in life and I was good in math and physics and I decided to become an engineer I studied engineering and um, uh, one of my professors at UCLA told me that I'm really shy I cannot make an eye contact with people can you believe it <laughs> <laughs> and um, he said when you're presenting in class you're like only looking at the ceiling or you're looking at the ground even though your presentation is amazing but you're extremely shy go read books about self-confidence go to take classes take courses do something because uh, you can be very successful but you're very shy and all my life most of the women I saw around me they were shy so it was kind of normal to be shy I thought this is how it is it's like everybody all the women are shy and if they are doing a presentation, they're exactly like me. They are, they're just pretending for a few seconds. They are not shy. And so I, and my, sh I connected shyness to lack of self-confidence. I thought it's kind of the same thing. Um, and anyways, um, I went to this class and I was in the class. I took the first one and the second one in one of them, uh, the leader of the seminar said, come up with a project so big and huge beyond yourself, something impossible, something that you can't even think of doing in your wildest dreams. And I uh, was thinking, okay, what is something really crazy? What is something impossible? And I thought about, okay, I'll go do my PhD. I'm going to start a business. I'm going to start a center. But they, they, none of them inspired me. I just thought, eh, eh, it's just certain steps. And somebody behind me started talking about Everest. And I just, they were just talking about Everest Base Camp, not even the top. And I just heard the word Everest. And I thought, oh, that's impossible. I'm 100% sure I'm not capable of climbing Mount Everest. I hate cold weather. I've never been camping before. I've never slept in a sleeping bag. I hated spiders. That, that's it. Uh, that's impossible. And that's, that's how it all started. 
because there's someone behind you that blurted out Mount Everest. And then you registered that as that, that is my new quest. Yeah. That is my new opportunity. Cause I have never thought about or put myself in those types of conditions to do something like that. And it sounds like something inside of you opened up and you just, you just embraced it. Mm-hmm. Um, did you want, did, did you want to change your life at that point? Like, were you looking for something different? Um, or was that, uh, just something just that was a big surprise to you? Uh, like when you walked into that conference or, or that, uh, event, were you expecting to have some kind of change in your life? Um, I would say I was tired of my nine to five job. I was kind of, I was looking for something, but I thought everybody is looking for something and for the rest of their life, they're just to stay with their nine to five job. And that's how everybody's life is. I kind of, I didn't have an enough role models or people in front of me who have done something crazy, who I would look up to them. So at that point, I just thought this is this is everybody's life. They hate their nine to five job, but they stay with it because somebody needs to pay the bills and that's it. That's going to be... Yeah, it is safe. It's safe and it's predictable. Yeah. And I thought this is the only thing I'm good at. I can't do anything else other than electrical engineering. I just have to stay with it. And and so that's kind of my way. That I thought this is... That, and that's everybody. That's how everybody lives their life. And when I was in the seminar and the leader of the seminar said, come up with something impossible. And I th- thought of Everest. I thought, oh, I'll just go climb Everest. If, if I'm capable of it, or I'll just try and then I'll come back and I do my nine to five electrical engineering all over again. I didn't know it's going to become like this. <laughs> I had no idea, but I secretly without telling anybody, I was looking for change, but I didn't know what was it. Absolutely. It sounds like a divine, a divine intervention, um, uh, a moment of enlightenment. Mm-hmm. So, uh, wonderful. So you went to climb Mount Everest Mm -hmm. and, um, how did you, uh, get there? How did you prepare or did you just start climbing right away? Well, I thought that people just show up and go climb Everest and that's how it is. I'm here. I'm ready. I got my flag. I'm going to go plant it at the top. I just, I really thought like it's like a weak thing. People go on Mount Everest, they go up. I had even, I didn't even think about the time or elevation or skills. I just thought. Lack of oxygen. (laughs) Nothing. I had no idea because I've never hiked before. We don't have anybody in my family or extended family or even friends who have ever climbed anything. So never heard any stories about climbing, never watched any movies at that point about climbing. So it's like zero negative experience about mountains. So when um, I like I went home and I Googled how to climb Everest. That's great. Because that's my only (laughs) way of figuring. (laughs) Thank you, Google. (laughs) And uh, there was a phone number. I called them and I said, I want to climb Mount Everest. What should I do? They asked me, do you have any experience? I said, no, zero experience. I've never done anything. They said, have you ever been on elevation? I said, on a plane or like walking? They said, no, walking. And I said, no, really, Yosemite National Park, like even the simple hikes of Yosemite National Park, which is really kind of 2,000 feet, 3,000 feet. That's like nothing compared to 29,000 feet Everest. So they said, no, that doesn't even count. 
Uh, that's a vacation. <laughs> <laughs> so, but they said, go climb a bunch of mountains. They gave me a list. They said, if you successfully climb those, then you might be ready for Everest. And I was extremely excited because they didn't say, no, there is no way. They said, there is a way. It's just a very long way. So you, you had to earn the right to mm. climb Mount Everest. So you climbed how many mountains before that? Nine mountains. Wow. Nine mountains. Wow. And the number nine was Chuoyu, which is the sixth highest mountain in the world. It's, uh, it took us 45 days. It's 27,000 feet. And it's next to Everest. Really, when you're standing on top of Chuoyu, the very first thing you see is like Everest right there, right in front of you. And you're like, oh, I wish I could just jump like and just get up there and be done with this whole thing. So I kind of, I climbed a lot of mountains to get ready for Everest. And when I was standing on top of Chuoyu and I was looking at Everest, like right there, only 2,000 feet more, I knew that I can make it now. I knew that I'm ready, which is, this is back in 2014 when I summited Chuoyu. And 2015 was the earthquake. Yes, the... Uh the major earth earthquake in uh, Nepal. Mm -hmm. Right, right. But going back to your point, for the preparation period, taking on a monumental goal, climbing an Everest or doing anything that's outside your comfort zone, you did the research and you prepared yourself mentally and physically to successfully take on this type of challenge. And I think it's a, an important keynote to understand that if you're going to commit to something, you're going to have to do the homework. You're going to have to do the prep work. You can't just jump into it and expect to be successful. Um, but it's also constructive to fail. Um, but it sounds like you did the right things to get to the next step and to earn the opportunity to take on this massive challenge. Yeah, and it wasn't just that no, those nine mountains that I climbed, like the training, going to the gym twice a day, once in the morning, once at night, mm. like changing my diet, like finding trainers, people who have done such a thing, reading a lot of books, watching a lot of movies. You know, it wasn't just that nine mountains that I climbed. I had to kind of research every single gear that I was taking with me because my life depends on those gears and so researching figuring out which one is the best go to the mountain try them this one doesn't work go change it you know and then and then at the same time I was doing so much more which was my charity work and so like kind of combining all of this and my own work and just kind of living my normal life at the same time it was a lot I was living like 10 people uh, during that time incredible so you eventually get to mount everest mm -hmm. and you're how far up before there's an earthquake so um i was at twenty thousand feet when the earthquake hit us um there was a 7.8 earthquake and i was in the <clears throat> sorry in <clears throat> I was in the most dangerous part of Mount Everest called Kumbu Icefall. Kumbu Icefall is an ice museum. It's gorgeous and beautiful. There are pieces of ice the size of a building who are hanging like 45 degrees on you. And at any moment, they can just break and they can fall on you and you disappear from the face of the earth or you fall into a crevasse or you're crossing a ladder 
over a very deep crevasse icy valley that nobody can even see the bottom it's gorgeous it's beautiful but it's scary it's the most dangerous part of Everest really and at any moment you can die and that part doesn't need a 7.8 earthquake it's scary by itself it's it and and imagine that there are 50 that at that time in 2015 there were 50 ladders over the crevasses that we had to cross to safely get to just to camp one so really only between the base camp and camp one is the best part of everest it's like the most beautiful part and then so we're going up these ladders crossing these deep crevasses and i was on this ladders that there were five ladders connected to each other and I was on top of the fifth ladder and I just had a three feet four feet more to climb to get to the top of the wall like game of thrones kind of a wall and I was up there when the whole wall started shaking left and right and uh, it, it was you know coming from California the horizontal movement the shake felt like California and then my brain told me that this is the earthquake. This is an earthquake. And I couldn't believe it. I thought how unlucky somebody could be to get an earthquake on Everest at 20,000 feet. Not just standing flat at 20,000 feet. I'm on a ladder. And so I was just thinking, what did I do in my life that I deserve this? <laughs> and so I, I, I was extremely scared. I was traumatized. I didn't know what to do. I was angry. I just had all these emotions and I was trying to figure out how can I survive? Like at this moment, I'm thinking, did I ever have any training for this moment? Like 20,000 feet on a ladder inside an avalanche or at that point, I thought I'm inside the avalanche because there was so much snow and debris coming in. I cannot see anything. I can't even see my hand right in front of my face. So I thought, this is it. I'm inside the avalanche. The avalanche is coming. It's going to hit me and it's going to take me down. And I'm going to be inside just one of these crevasses and nobody can ever come down and find my body because I'm going to be buried fully. So all this is going through your mind and how, how, how much time? It's like few seconds. Yeah, yeah. It's few seconds. So much to process. Yeah, but in my mind, it's an, an hour now that I'm dealing with this. You know, it's like more than few seconds. And mm. I saw my whole life right in front of me. I can't see anything. I can't breathe. I'm trying to clip myself to the anchor, which was on ice, but I'm shaking so badly. I can't even clip myself. And I tried over and over. My I was just shaking so badly. And then at one point I thought, this is it. Um, um, this is it. This is how it's going to end. And I accepted that this is how I'm going to go. But I was just a little happy that at least I'm dying for a good cause. Because I, the money that I promised to raise for the charity, I did raise that much. So uh, it, at least I'm dying for a good cause. And like movies, I saw my whole life right in front of me. And... It, it, it was just, I guess this was my brain's last attempt to keep me motivated to survive because it was showing me pictures of my family members and um, I knew that this is the last attempt to kind of keep me hopeful. But I was kind of at the point that I thought there is no way for me to survive this and this is it. 
what a crazy, crazy experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And everything stopped. And uh, we had to continue going up because there was um, the ladders were broken or unstable down there. So we had to continue going up. We continue to the first camp. People were shocked to see us in one piece. Me and my team were six of us and the two guides. We were all okay. We were just traumatized, but okay. And they were shocked to see us in one piece and okay. Um, you know, and we were just waiting there for a few days. A helicopter came, took us down to the base camp. Then another helicopter took us down to Periche, which is a village down. And then bunch of helicopters finally because 10,000 people died that day almost 10,000 people died that day so like all the helicopters on the mountain no no in Nepal oh so all the resources of the Nepal government were like all over the even India or the all the helicopters that other countries sent out toward help they were all over the country we were not the priority. It was just a few of us on the mountain. There were 10,000 other people or 100,000 injured people that they needed help way more than us. We were not injured. We were just kind of really scared at 20,000 feet, receiving a lot of avalanches and aftershocks. So we got very lucky when the helicopter came to rescue us. After eight days, we finally were down to Kathmandu, which is capital of Nepal. Wow. Okay, so such such a radical journey to experience, um, to look death in the face and to survive um, when 10,000 people tragically lost their life in such an unfortunate circumstances where the, the risk is so high. Um, how did you feel once you got back to safety? Did were you really just shooken up? Were you grateful that you were okay? I mean, how did that, how did that impact you um, as soon as you guys got um, support to get to a safe place? I was extremely angry. Really? Yeah. I, Why is that? I, I just, um, so I promised a nonprofit organization mm that I raise $1 per foot of Everest or any mountain that I climb in preparation for Everest for these girls who become victims of human trafficking or are forced to get married at a very young age to continue their education. So we provide education for them so that they can get a job, you know, live a normal life. They don't become victims of human trafficking. And I was extremely angry because now the girls, they lost their homes, they lost their schools, and when the disaster hit a country, the risk of human trafficking increases so much. And I, my goal was to raise this money so these girls, they can continue their education. But now I, I'm, I wasn't even sure if I can even find them. I wasn't even sure. I mean, thankfully, right now, they're all fine. They're all continuing their education, and that's perfect. It's great. Yeah, but back then, at that moment, I didn't know, and I was, you're asking about my emotion. I was angry because I thought, why do I deserve this? Why these girls deserve this? They already had a bad life. They didn't need an earthquake. So I was angry. I just... I was just running around like a chicken trying to find the girls, trying to make sure they're okay, trying to make sure they have food. But 
then the, the country was in a chaos. There were, all the stores were closed. We couldn't not, we couldn't find any food for them. So I just found some chips and rice and lentils and I, whatever I could find for them, I would buy it and take it to them. They didn't have a restroom. They had just had to go hide in the rubble to, to use the restroom. It was just very, very, uh, sad on unbelievable like it's like I feel like those pictures and those things I would process for the rest of my life because I couldn't believe this is happening so my emotion was a lot of anger and sadness Mm -hmm. you have a very good heart Sarah very good heart and I don't think most people would take that initiative to think of other people in in that type of situation, especially right after to go and uh, offer your time, your energy and your support to make sure that they're okay. Um, So I definitely, um, I admire that. I admire your integrity and, and, and your love for, for your cause. Um, But this experience turned into something valuable for you, didn't it? Mm -hmm. And how did that turn into something valuable for you? So um, it was very interesting because I came down the mountain. I was traumatized myself and I didn't know how to deal with the trauma other than writing it, writing it over and over. So I wrote my story growing up in Iran, my story of how we moved to the United States, why we did that, the story of my parents, the story of the girls that I met in Nepal and how they inspired me to climb Mount Everest. The story of me making two million mistakes as I was climbing all these mountains and nothing, not making making it to the top of any mountain, uh, you know. Finally, little by little, one by one, I started training and how I trained for Everest and the earthquake and the feeling that I have up there when the earthquake hit us and the aftermath. So I started writing everything, everything that was in my heart for for all my life that I had to write down and I never did. And um, it became a book and I published the book and it was very difficult sharing all my life with the rest of the world because you kind of want to hide a little and kind of keep stuff for yourself. You don't want to show all of yourself to, to the world. So that was a very big experience for me. It became a book. I pub, uh, published the book. I started doing a lot of speaking um, and take, uh, doing a book tour and then somebody uh, invited me to do a TEDx talk in France. And, uh, and I, like, back then I was not very familiar with TEDx and I wasn't expecting somebody to invite me to do a TEDx. But they did and I did my TEDx talk and a lot of companies invited me to do this speech in their companies to inspire their employees. Kind of things happened that I wasn't even planning for it. And uh, it just became this big thing and I at one point I thought you know what Um, I don't want to teach the girls to give up I want to teach them bad things happen in life but you get up and you continue on so I announced I'm going to go back and climb Everest and not just Everest I'm going to add six more mountains to it so it becomes the seven summits and at that point I figured there are no other Iranians who have done the seven summits I would have been the first one, I, I am the first one in uh, men and women. And I thought this way, um, it's kind of on, on behalf of all the Iranian women all my life that I saw that they were, uh, they kept back, uh, uh, you, they never had opportunities. They never had um, access to uh, things that a normal person here in the United States has. Or, you know, I kind of, 
I grew up there and I experienced firsthand the oppressive, restrictive environment that makes gender discrimination possible. I saw it like how my little sisters, aunt and, uh, you know, our neighbors and my mom, they didn't have access. And I just wanted to kind of through my charity work to bring this access not to Iranian women, but to Nepali women, but for all the women. And um, so that was my fire and motivation at that point. So I said, you know what? I'm going to go back and climb the seven summits. And I'm going to climb all the seven summits for seven different nonprofit organizations who are empowering women globally. What a beautiful cause and and, uh, such a beautiful vision to be uh, uh, constructed from such an unfortunate experience and they, you know, there is a, a saying, and I don't know how the saying goes, but my understanding of the concept is in life, like you're saying, there's tragic moments, there's unfortunate situations, there's loss, there's suffering. The greatest gifts in our life come from those nuggets of gold and transformation come from some of our greatest pain and greatest loss. And I think it takes a certain amount of imagination in uh, self uh, working on yourself and self healing to interpret that experience and then take all that shattered glass and then put it into something beautiful and then have it mean something to other people and share it with the world on a big stage like you're doing with TED Talk and um, you know writing the book and and just like use this as a launching pad to create a movement that's empowering women. That's incredible. That's amazing. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Um, So you climbed Everest a second time. You actually just got back recently, right? (laughs) Because I wanted to interview you a few months ago and you're like, I'm going to go climb Everest again. I'm like, awesome. (laughs) So, um, So can you describe for us what is it like to stand there? at the top of Mount Everest, especially going through what you just shared with us? Um, Kumbu Aiswal, which where I was when the earthquake happened, was the uh, most difficult part of the mountain for me. Every time that I saw that wall, the wall that I was supposed to die on and I didn't, I cried. I, I just, it reminded me of the earthquake it reminded me of how I survived it. I would just look at it and freeze. I would just stare at the wall. I'm like, you were kind of about to kill me and you didn't. And, you know, I was just had this long conversation with the wall about how I'm so scared of you and I don't like you, you know. So when we climb Everest or a very high altitude mountain, uh, we climb the wall, we climb uh, the mountain more than three times sometimes. So we go up to camp one, we come down because our body needs to get used to the high elevation, lack of oxygen. We need to get acclimatized so that we can uh, climb easier. So we go up, we come down in the base camp and rest. We go up to camp two, we come down and rest. So we repeat these routes so much and I had to cross that wall six times. So it wasn't just once I go to the wall and then, then I pass it. No, six times I had to talk to that wall because every time I saw the wall, I had something to say to the wall. So the first time that I saw the wall, I froze. 
I was cold. I kind of, I stopped climbing. I was just looking at the wall and telling how much I don't like the wall and how much I'm scared of you. I was just kind of talking to the wall. And then, and then the six times after I was kind of went up and down and up and down after the summit, we are coming down and I see the wall again. This is the very last time I'm going to see the wall. I told the wall, I love you. Thank you for keeping me safe that day. Um, you made my life much better. Now I'm living my passion. And you made me help so many girls all over the world just because that day you kept me safe and I survived and I could write a book and I, can, I could start my own business. I could start my own nonprofit organization. And as a result of you, I decided to do the seven summits and help seven different organizations globally. As a result of you, I raised $600,000 and helped so many girls. So uh, that I hate, I hate you turned out to become I love you because I was I made peace with that trauma I made peace with that uh, moment that um, you know I was just for so many years I was dealing with that moment I was like was repeating it in my head and like why did I do this why how come I I didn't know how to clip myself how come I was shaking so badly I should have practiced more you know I was blaming myself at the same time blaming the wall like blaming the the guides blaming other, you know that was kind of a moment in my life that it was uh, like a knot and I had to open that knot and this time going back to Everest last month I mean uh, during this season which was April and May um, helped me open that knot again which I feel like I removed this huge weight from my shoulders and I just put it down. I feel much lighter. And I had no idea this was so necessary for me to go back to that trauma, look it into the face and just talk to the wall over and over and kind of go through the process of I hate you all the way to I love you so that I can be done with that chapter of my life and close the book on it and move on and um, a lot of times we escape our traumas and I think I was very lucky to have a chance to go challenge the trauma look it into the face deal with it and uh, now I feel like that hate and that fear changed into gratitude and I think that's um I needed that so bad in my life and I had no idea. Um, so I'm glad that I had that chance. Very powerful. Very powerful. Yeah. I, I love the, um, the transition of that fear and resentment towards the wall, your relationship with the wall. Um, anyone can take that experience and uh, apply it to something that makes them fearful or resentful towards a person or, or a, a situation. And you chose to address it, to face it, and uh, work through it uh, mentally and emotionally. And that led you to creating a space of love, to embrace the wall, and to create unionship, to create uh, positivity, uh, um, healing uh, with the wall and to yourself. Uh, there's a really amazing story called The Chinese Farmer. Are you familiar with The Chinese Farmer mm -mm. story? So there's this Chinese farmer and he has all these animals and he loves horses and, and, and he has one horse 
And one day his horse ran away. And everybody in the town was talking about it. And they said, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. I'm so sorry. That's terrible. The farmer said, well, maybe. The next day, the horse comes back with seven more wild horses. <laughs> and everybody in the town is so excited. They're like, that's great. Congratulations. And the farmer says, well, maybe. The next day, his son is riding one of the wild horses, breaks his leg. Everybody in town says, I'm so sorry, that's terrible. And the farmer says, well, maybe. Then the next day, the military's coming around to recruit for the draft for the war. The military passes on the farmer's son because of his broken leg. And everybody said, wow, that's great. And the farmer again says, well, maybe. And it's how we interpret our situations, our conflicts, our perceptional awareness, mm -hmm. and how we deal with it. It's not necessarily the situation um, itself. Yeah. So it made me think of that. Mm -hmm. and, and your story is much more beautiful because <laughs> it's real. Um, so what would, what would you say was the most challenging part of your second journey to Everest? Was it facing that wall? Yeah, I would yeah. say facing that wall. I mean, this time I got sick a lot uh, compared to all the other mountains that I climbed. I usually don't get sick as much but mm. this mountain I was very sick so imagine facing the wall while I'm sick in lack of oxygen and all of it it made it more difficult I, I, I would say the wall yeah absolutely I want to transition to your involvement with empowering women marginalized women uh, what is your connection with uh, this cause and why is it so important to you well um it, it, it was funny originally when I decided to climb Mount Everest it was just really to prove to myself that I'm capable or prove to my parents that I'm really strong and I can do this and I couldn't summit mountains back then when originally I started I wouldn't make it to the top of the mountain because my motivation was really very very personal and egoic and it was, I had such a hard time making uh, making to the top of the mountain and uh, when I met the founder of the organization, uh, Empower Nepali Girls, uh, nine years ago, and he told me how the girls become victims of human trafficking. There, he said there was this belief that men who are HIV positive, they think that if they sleep with a virgin girl, they get treated, they get well. So they kind of buy the girls really cheap like 50 bucks no they, way yeah oh the girls gosh. get raped they get diseases Jeez. and even if they survive and somehow go back to their villages they can never have a normal life and so it this was kind of i heard this and i felt like a like my life that was a turning point in my life that was the moment i thought i can never go back to my normal life work home work home knowing this is happening on the other side of the planet and it's not just nepal there's like so many other countries that this is happening but i felt like i was uh, i i couldn't see this in my life or i was blind all my life and then that moment i opened my eyes for the very first time and so i just i i it was very surprised to me when I said I want to raise one dollar per foot of any mountain that I climb for the girls. And you know that twenty nine thousand dollars that I promised to the organization originally, which was the elevation of the Everest, um, would save like hundred fifty girls to go to school. And so that's how it all started. And then the earthquake happened. 
and I dealt with my trauma. And then after that, I promised to do this for seven organizations. Why just one? And uh, for me, it was very important because it kind of, for me, this is an example of peace because I'm not empowering my own people. I'm not empowering only the people that I met and that I like or I just spend more time with or from the same background or same nationality. I, I wanted to empower everybody that that was my message, message of peace, because if we see all the other people the same way that I see ourselves, if we help all the other people the same way we are helping our people, then there would be no war, it would be all peace. So it was, it was difficult and it was a challenge for me, but at the same time, that was my message. That's what I wanted to do for the world. And um, along the way, I had a lot of personal challenges myself in these nine years that I've been climbing the seven summits for seven organizations, I had the opportunity actually to go to these countries and meet these women and hear their stories of hardship, resilience, hope, and see how powerful and strong they are. They just don't have opportunities. If they have opportunities, they can move the world. And uh, so kind of talking to them, I realized we are all the same. Doesn't matter where we live, we have the same issues, all over the world and we're dealing with the same things and it kind of made me uh, realize um, how we are just one we're all one and I kind of felt it with every cell in my body how I feel the same as the Tanzanian women who are dealing with fistula how I feel exactly the same to the Afghani girls that I met the Syrian refugees the Nepali girls it's like all of the American girls that I met in the organizations it's just um I, in my life journey I needed to see that and I needed to experience it and um, I learned a lot from all these women that I met and they inspired me every single day I wouldn't be able to climb all these mountains if it was not because these women because the the way they face their challenges and how strong and powerful they are with minimum opportunities and minimum access to anything that inspires me and it reminds me of my own childhood and I kind of want to be the person for them that uh, they never had. So that's why I did my PhD in leadership and I did my uh, thesis. Uh, my dissertation was on empowering women in developing countries. And that way, I just wanted to uh, being able to provide programs for women. And that's my, the base of my organization, my own nonprofit, Climb Your Everest, that we provide this uh, collaborative programs for young women above 18. And they design the program for themselves. I'm there to help them, to support them. But I want them to tell us what they need, what skills they need to learn to find better jobs, to live a better life and that way I want to be able to support them so that they design the program, they create the program, they teach themselves and then as the things that they teach themselves and they learn and they practice, then they can go live a better life, the life that they want, whatever that is. Uh, if it is becoming a nurse or an engineer or a doctor, whatever it is, or just a mom, or they're all fine. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just wonderful what you've been able to do for all of these women and to 
be uh, an example for them to look up to and um, to give back so much uh, for improving their quality of life, their education, um, you know, uh, helping, uh, I guess, minimize some of the criminal activity with, with human trafficking. Um, so what a what an incredible, noble and, and motivating cause to fight for every day. Um, so just congratulations. That's, that's just so wonderful. Um, when you were younger, who, who was a big inspiration to you or who is a big inspiration to you today? When I was growing up in Iran, um, my aunt, uh, she was the biggest inspiration for me. Because in a country like Iran, like so many other countries, they expect women to get married really quick, really fast, and just have a bunch of kids. And she didn't. She kind of, she was taking her time. Um, she was focused on her work and on her job. And she learned driving. She was the only woman that I knew who knows how to drive. She had her own car and her own apartment. And that was the weirdest thing back when I was a kid. There was nobody else like her. So she was my inspiration. I looked up to her and um, not just me, all the girls that I knew, all the neighborhood, all the people around us. She was the only woman that was kind of inspired all the girls. And, and I mean, even right now, when you talk to, to those neighbors and the girls, they're all like your aunt. She was something like because back then it was so difficult. She was going against the, the status quo. Of exactly. The exactly. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm very thankful to her for being that role model. For That's me. so sweet. Yeah. So you have a Ph.D. in leadership. <laughs> um, so what what uh, aspect of leadership is that Ph.D. Uh, specialized in or is it more of a generic uh, leadership uh, type of study? Um, it's funny that you asked this question throughout the four years that I studied leadership, there were so many topics that came up that I was so interested in to kind of specialize in. And every time I would tell my uh, faculty and my professors, I'm like, Oh, I love this topic. I really want to specialize in this one. And they're like, yeah, just, just wait when it comes to the dissertation. And those people who are listening to this and they've done a dissertation, at, at the end of the fourth or the fifth year, you're just so tired. You're so done with it. You just want to be finished. And um, thankfully, my dissertation time happened during pandemic. So I couldn't even leave the house. So I was just sitting writing my dissertation. That made it much, much easier because I heard other people who could actually go out. They had such a hard time writing their dissertation. Um, so uh, basically, originally, I wanted to focus on servant leadership. Because um, there are so many different styles of leadership. But for me, servant leadership, just giving service, being interested in other, pe other people's goals and what they want to achieve in their life was because like, speaking to my heart. I just wanted to go about that. But then I thought um, if I want to kind of narrow that down even further would be women's empowerment, which is kind of. Uh, it was very personal for me because all my life, all my childhood, I wanted to be empowered. I wanted to do research how to empower that little Sarah inside me who is still living there, how to empower her. And all the girls that I met throughout these years in different organizations all over the world, from Africa to Europe to U United States to South America, Nepal, I just wanted to learn how I can be the most uh, 
um, how it can be the most impactful in their life in a positive way. And so it, it, doing the leadership, studying the leadership and kind of narrowed down my thesis dissertation on women's empowerment in developing countries was very personal. And that's, that's, that was, that's why I decided to do that. Incredible, incredible. What uh, school did you get your PhD from? Antioch University. Oh, awesome. Fantastic. So it was a hybrid program that I could sometimes be in person and sometimes from home. So that made it much easier. And do you feel that that education gave you the tools you needed to become the person you wanted to become through that, that leadership experience? Um, I think education, educational system needs so much work. Mm. Um, it gave me the structure mm. to spend the time on the things. You know, homework gave me in the structure to sit down and read the books that I'm supposed to read about discipline that specific, and, yeah. exactly, discipline, about that specific topic. So I would say um, education might not work for everybody. For uh, It works for me because I need the structure and I need a mentorship of a faculty to tell me, okay, this topic, you don't want to study it. This other topic is a little bit better. That don't waste your time on this topic or kind of give me hints on which way is the better way to learn and study because there's just so much that I can learn and study and kind of helping me, mentoring me along the way, supporting me, motivating me. I think like our faculty did a great job keeping me on my path. Uh, rather than just because there was just so much that I was interested to study when it comes to leadership it's it's such a vast topic and there are just so many branches and uh, and I'm glad that I did it uh, in a this the education that I got the, in our school it, it was a little different from what I got at UCLA or even my school back in Iran or my university in Iran um, it was very collaborative it was designed that you are just part of the conversation rather than a lecture giving you um, uh, the things that you need to learn. It was a whole discussion throughout my whole PhD time. We were just sitting in circles mostly and just talking about different topics. And we would go to small groups and talk about uh, the topics that we were interested in in those small groups. So I would say the way I did my PhD, I would repeat it over and over because it was such a special program for me. Um, but um, educational system in the world, there's so much work needs to be done. <laughs> I absolutely uh, agree. And I know there's people that are fighting for that um, education system to be reshaped and, and redesigned. Um, what was the biggest takeaway or, or valuable thing that you learned from your PhD experience studying leadership? So when I was doing my dissertation, there are different methodologies, qualitative and quantitative, that you can use when you do your research. And my research methodology was participatory action research, which means you are designing the whole research using or kind of including, collaborating with people who are doing the research on. So for me, uh, I was working with Nepali girls. And they were part of the whole research throughout the whole time. It was not ever like I'm the researcher separate and you are the people who are, the research is happening to you. They were there to design it with me, tell me what to do and what not to do. 
And uh, so usually participatory action research is a methodology, like a qualitative sort of a methodology, which means that uh, you uh, are including the whole community that you're impacting as a part of your research. So they have the same say that the most difficult thing for me that I learned was that I need to stop speaking and let them speak. Which, because a lot of time as the researchers, I wanted to give my feedback and say, okay, if you do it this way, it's better. But then the most, the, the, my challenge was to not to say anything and let them contribute fully to the project. And, and that's what I learned. I learned that um, a lot of times when we go help communities, they know better what they want and what they need. And if we interfere less, they can figure it out. We just we can only support them to figure out the best way for themselves to empower themselves and to find a way to uh, fu- live a fulfilling life, live better lives, increase the quality of their own life. So kind of not interfering with them and supporting them, just being there for them as uh, a mentor who is not speaking, just supporting, that was what I learned. I love that methodology because there's so many different flavors of leadership and what you're saying to me i interpret that as leading from behind and letting go of control and and establishing trust so they can problem solve on their own and they're not being told how to do something but they're figuring it out along the way but you're it's more collaborative rather than dictative mm-hmm. um because you know i'm in corporate and um you know thankfully i work for an organization that has really great leadership, but I hear stories from friends of mine at other companies where it's just not the case and uh, it's very toxic and people can't perform or do what they love to do, even if it's what they're specially uh, trained to do and, and do a good job because the leadership is out of alignment with the way that they learn and the way that they perform. And I, I have learned to take leadership very seriously in my life. And if, uh, if I don't align with the leadership on my team, I can't be on that team. I gotta find a community of people that we have the same vision or their vision is is helping expand me and, and the value I can give to the team. Mm-hmm. So I really love your methodology on that. So what would you categorize as three core principles of your leadership style? I would say um, being in service, being interested in other people's vision and goal for themselves and being open and a space for them to transform and learn. Beautiful, beautiful. How important is discipline to you in your life? Um, I love to live life. I mean, discipline is important, but mm-hmm. if I see uh, um, ice cream, I wouldn't say, well, I'm disciplined. I'm not so <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> So it, it's very important uh, for me. I mean, to be able to um, accomplish things and get to the goals. Uh, we need to like, think about training for Everest. Yeah. I had to have discipline to the max. So to- no ice cream? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I had, I had to gain weight for Everest because we lose no our kidding. appetite. We, yeah. Wow. We lose appetite up on the mountain. So we kind of we want to gain weight going starting the expedition it's 60 days so even uh, i took a lot of good snacks with me but i 
you know, I'm at preparing the one to climb point, Everest too because I put on some weight. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it, it's person by person. It's different, but oh, okay. you can want to have extra yeah. 10 pounds, 15 yeah, yeah. pounds, cause you're going to easily lose it on the mountain. Sure. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, so yes, dis- discipline is extremely important for me. And, um, I, I would say if people have goals, an Everest size kind of a goal, mm. nobody can accomplish it without discipline. So you're saying like there should be balance, like, exactly. right. Uh, um, that you know do your do the work that needs to be done but enjoy yourself reward yourself when it's appropriate so now that you have come this far you've conquered everest you've written your book you've become a professional speaker what does your next labyrinth or mountain look like for you i would say uh, my next mountain is my nonprofit organization and and what's it called climb your everest and I want to help people around the world to find their Everest, find their whys, why they want to climb that Everest, and help them find mentors and teams and groups who can help them climb their Everest and uh, just be there for them. And I think we grow so much when we have a big goal, like Everest size of kind of a goal. We grow so much because it gives us a lot of energy and direction and um so I, it, that, that's my, my nonprofit is my Everest, my next Everest, because it's just so big, empowering women. There's so much work that needs to be done. It's that this mountain doesn't even have a top. Like I, I, I can climb the rest of my life and there's still more to do. And um, I used to be scared of very tall mountains, but now I like a mountain that doesn't have a top because I'm going to be climbing for the rest of my life. And I'm in my happy place when I'm climbing. So uh, not my nonprofit, Empowering Women. That's great, Sarah. That's that's very beautiful. We're going to have a lot of fearless, powerful women climbing <laughs> mountains all over the world. <laughs> <laughs> we will be right back with 20 Degrees Deeper into the Labyrinth with our leader, Dr. Sarah Safari, after a word from our sponsors. We would like to thank our sponsor, One Education, One World, a Section 501c3 certified nonprofit on a mission to bring quality education to children in the rural parts of the world that do not have access to schools. OEOW gives these children quality education by providing them with an educational space, curriculum, supplies, qualified teachers and leadership in underserved communities. The focus is to inspire hearts and minds of all children while fostering their social, psychological, and spiritual well-being. If you'd like to learn more on how to support OEOW and bring quality education to underprivileged children, please visit www.oneeducationoneworld.org forward slash donations. Help us make a positive change in our world and our children's lives. Education is the right of every child, even a child far away living in dire conditions in far-to-reach places. We would like to thank our sponsor, Imagine Collective, your premier experience agency, leading California's central and southern regions in event planning and management, digital and experiential marketing, brand partnerships, and more. Serving all coastal and inland communities, 
from Monterey County down to San Diego County in the great Golden State. One of my favorite things about Imagine Collective is they donate a portion of their proceeds to a trusted charity of your choosing for each service they provide. Contact them today at 323-207-9572 and visit their website for more information at theimaginecollective.com. Mention Leaders Labyrinth and enjoy 20% off your first service. Imagine Collective. Let's collectively imagine how to make our world a better place through the everyday work we do together. We are here in the labyrinth with Dr. Sarah Safari going 20 degrees deeper into the labyrinth where I ask our leader 20 design questions to get to know them even better on the mental and spiritual level. Sarah, are you ready for the first question? I was born ready. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Question number one, how do you start your day? Do you have any morning routines or non-negotiables? On a bad day, I wake up and I get my phone <laughs> and I check emails. <laughs> On a good day, I'll just wear my shoes and I start running at least for 15 minutes around the house to just wake up. Um, so on a good day, I wake up at six. On a bad day, I wake up at eight. <laughs> How would you describe your favorite quality about yourself? I would say my favorite quality is I can be calm in any situation. What characteristic do you value most in other people? I like honesty and vulnerability. If you could travel back in time to any era, what time period would you want to live in? I would say, um, I would say uh, 200 years ago in Scotland. What is a book that Im impacted your life or that you would recommend to others? Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. If you could sit on a bench and have a deep discussion with anyone alive or deceased, who would it be? My dad who died before I was born. Oh, that's beautiful. What is one of the most important lessons that you learned in a relationship? Being patient. What is a powerful piece of knowledge or advice that someone gave to you that helped shift your perception on life? Even the hardest things will pass. What is your definition of success? Being happy and in peace with everything you have and don't have. Do you have a daily mantra or a philosophy on life? When I have, when I'm in difficult times, I tell myself this will pass. So that my mantra is this will pass. Why do you think we are here as a human species? To grow and learn and make a difference and have fun. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. If reincarnation is real, what animal would you want to be in your next life? An eagle. Me too. <laughs> it's the best. We should finish the eagle puzzle I have on my, my coffee table. What is one of your favorite quotes that profoundly impacted you? When we are living our best life, we are being light for other people uh, so that they can find their way. Beautiful. Do you know who said that? I can't remember. Beautiful quote. What is one of the most powerful investments that you've made with no money? 
When I was a student, I participated in this workshop about uh, self-confidence and interpersonal communication, which I was a student, I was on financial aid, but I decided to use my money that way. And um, I think I learned so much from that workshop. Amazing. If there is one word that comes to mind that sets your soul on fire, what word would that be? Everest. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> if you had a chance to meet your younger self as a child and share a piece of wisdom of what you now have learned to be true in life, what wisdom would you give to your younger self? Get a mentor as fast as possible. <laughs> <laughs> When you think of a great leader, who is the first person that comes to your mind? Hmm, that's a very difficult question. <laughs> um, one of our Nepali girls in Nepal, she grew up uh, in a very rural area and now she's leading the organization and she's helping so many girls in Nepal. I would think uh, she is my favorite leader because she had to teach herself so many skills and she had she didn't she, she's not coming from much but she was so open to learn and um, she really inspires me so I would say she's one of the best leaders that I know I love that that's beautiful what is your greatest fear cockroach <laughs> wow sounds like other than that you're fearless <laughs> oh really yeah okay <laughs> all right what is your greatest version of happiness just really being in peace and um like being very present at the moment and be 100% um, aware of the things that I'm doing at this moment rather than daydreaming or thinking about other stuff as like the, as our monkey brain keeps doing that. So kind of being very present, being mindful. That's happiness for me. Beautiful, beautiful. To our audience and the people listening, how can they get involved or su provide support for your cause, Climb Your Everest? Well, there are so many ways uh, people can just share our uh, social media, share our website with their friends and community. They can um, come with us to Nepal and meet the girls and um, teach them the skills that they know. They can, um, they can help us in um, writing blogs that we do for the girls. Like whatever skills that they have and they're good at, they can just contact us be in communication with us and they can um, help us in that way. What's the best way to contact your organization? Um, if you go to my website, uh, climbyoureverest.org, then um, you can find how to contact us. And do you guys have an Instagram page as well? Yes, Climb Your Everest. Amazing, amazing. This is the part of the show called Messages to Mankind where I ask our leader a hypothetical question. And the question is this, if the whole world had suddenly stopped only to listen to one message from Sarah, 
and you are reaching every single person on the planet, no matter where anyone is in the world, they can all understand you. And you got to carry forward this one message to all of humanity to help make an impact. What would be your message to mankind? We are all the same. We are one. Just be friends. Um, let's bring harmony and peace to this world that we are all living together. We are one. Beautiful. Thank you. Sara, I want to honor you for your graciousness, for being a voice and an agent of transformation, for empowering marginalized women around the world through equal opportunity and education, for heroically stepping into the faces of fear to achieve greatness by overcoming tremendous obstacles, both physically and mentally, to set world records as the first Iranian woman climbing all the highest points on earth across seven summits. For showing the world that we are not limited, but limitless. And if we believe in ourselves, every one of us is capable of climbing our own version of Everest and bringing positive impact to the world. Thank you for the wonderful person that you are and for your beautiful heart and for your spirit of giving generosity, your resilient mentality, and for sharing these gifts with the world to help empower others. So thank you for being you. And thank you for joining us in the labyrinth. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us in the labyrinth today with our leader, Dr. Sara Safari. To stay up to date on all the amazing things Dr. Sara Safari is doing, you may visit her website at sarasafari.com or to learn more about her nonprofit, Climb Your Everest providing education to marginalized women, please visit climbyoureverest.org. Each of us has an Everest we must climb, for the top of one mountain is the bottom of another. Step through the fear and take the journey one step at a time, for the quickest way to get anywhere is to go slowly. Awaken the leader within and remember to ignite your light. The effort.